please be seated and turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter number seven again. We'll pick up where we left off last week, starting in verse number seven. Matthew chapter number seven, beginning in verse number seven. And I'll start by reading this morning down through verse number 12. It says, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. But which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come to your scripture this morning, to this passage which is so dear to us, about asking and seeking and knocking, and we think of it in terms of coming to you, approaching you before your throne. Lord, we, we've sung about that this morning. We've, we've sung about coming before your throne through uh, the confidence we have from our great high priest, Jesus Christ. We've sung about the fact that because you are a good heavenly father, one who provides, who sees, who listens, who answers, who opens, uh, the door, as it were, we have confidence in the fact that it is well with our soul, even in the trials, even in the hardships. Lord, we've sung this very scripture, ask, seek, knock. Lord, I pray that these things would be uh, revealed to our hearts and our minds in a fresh way this morning, not a way that is brand new because it's not new. These things are ancient and ever true, but make them fresh in our understanding today, so that we might not just know them, but we might apply it and live it out. We pray that you'd be glorified in this. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Amen. Okay, well, we've, we have come now really to the second portion of teaching on prayer in the Sermon on the Mount. And of course, the, the first one and maybe the main one that we looked at uh, last year was the Lord's Prayer, and we gleaned a lot from that. And uh, if you think about these in really two ways, perhaps if you think about the section on the Lord's Prayer, you might think of that as Jesus' instruction on on how to pray. And uh, I think we looked at it as a, a pattern of prayer, and we saw several parts. Um, maybe you could say that a, a fully rounded prayer life will include exaltation, It'll include prayers for transformation. It'll include prayers for provision. It'll include prayers for remission of sins. And it'll include prayers for salvation. And exaltation, of course, is giving glory and honor to God for who he is and for what he's done. Transformation is praying as Jesus taught us, your kingdom come, your will be done. For his kingdom to come, for us to see the effects of that here in our lives and in the world. Provision is, of course, asking for our daily bread, not necessarily asking for wealth and abundance beyond what we need, but asking for enough. 
Remission is asking for God to forgive us of our sins as we forgive others as well. And salvation is not just the initial salvation where we come to faith, but that ultimate deliverance where Jesus taught us to pray, deliver us from evil. It's good to remember that pattern, not so that we can repeat it as rote, but so that we can pray as Jesus taught us. If our prayers are are simply asking for provision, but we never include prayer of forgiveness or prayer of exaltation, then we're missing out on part of what Jesus taught us. And likewise, if our prayers are always praise, but we never approach our Heavenly Father for help as one who does hear and answer our prayers, then we're really missing out on that as well. And that ties into our passage today, because if in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus was giving us a pattern of prayer or teaching us how to pray, then in this section here, he's really doubling down on that. And he's teaching us not just how to pray, but he's telling us to pray. He's teaching us the importance of prayer and not just any prayer, but persistent, earnest, and heartfelt prayer. And I ask a question in introduction this morning of myself and of you guys. Do we really sense the urgency and importance of prayer in our Christian walk? Do we cling to it as a gift, really even a weapon that is so powerful and magnificent, a gift from the loving father to his children to reach out to enter in, to commune, to ask, to plead, to lay out our emotions and our desires and our needs and our praises in such a childlike and honest sense before God our Father. Do we see it? Is that important? As I was reading this week, I, I, uh, I was reading a book and a couple resources from the old uh, British preacher, Charles Spurgeon, and uh, he wrote quite a bit on prayer. And I wanted to share with you some of these quotes. And uh, Charles Spurgeon, of course, is one of the more well-known pastors, uh, English-speaking pastors of the 19th century, probably London's most famous minister. And his sermons are still being used and read and, and, uh, and used to change lives through the Spirit of God. And uh, Spurgeon had the nickname of the, the Prince of Preachers. He didn't give himself that nickname, but others have, because he was very eloquent. He was skilled. He was successful. But as good of a preacher as Charles Spurgeon was, when you read his writings, really his personal conviction that was, was that prayer was even more important than his preaching. Here's some things that he said. Anything that makes us pray is a blessing. Prayer is not a hard requirement. It is the natural duty of the creature to his creator, the simplest homage that human need can pay to divine liberality. Another, another thing, prayer and praise are the oars by which a man may row his boat into the deep waters of the knowledge of Christ. Something else, he said, I know of no better thermometer to your spiritual temperature than this, the measure of your prayer. And finally, something he said, I would rather teach one man to pray than teach 10 men to preach. Now, many weeks in my study, I am personally convicted by the scripture, probably most weeks. And I have to ask myself this week, do I consider prayer 
such a gift, such an important treasure. Now, those are things that Charles Spurgeon said, but he's just another human, another teacher, another preacher of the gospel. But Jesus himself also spent no small amount of time in prayer and teaching on prayer. Beyond the Lord's Prayer, he seems he's seen many times uh, going to pray alone, going to the Father that the, the Father would be glorified. Uh, one of the longest un- uninterrupted uh, speeches, so to speak, of Jesus is actually a prayer that we have recorded in John 17, where he's praying for his disciples. Jesus prayed three times in the garden before his death. He was no stranger to prayer. And if you take a quick count, and you can do this pretty simply, especially with the resources we have nowadays, Jesus is recorded as either praying or is said to have prayed 38 times in the gospel records. But consider something significant that goes along with that. Jesus is mostly known for his teaching and maybe even more for his miracles. But do you know how many miracles are recorded of Jesus in the Gospels? I counted 37. So maybe if I'm off by one or two on either number, the result and the information is still incredible. Jesus Christ spent as much time, or at least we have as much recorded about him praying in the Gospels as we do about him actually performing miracles. That's pretty incredible because he is God in human flesh, yet he still devotes an equal amount of time to prayer as he does in his ministry. That should tell us that prayer is not just necessary, it's critical, absolutely critical. But I'm speaking to the choir in one sense because we know that we should pray. After all, it's one of those three spiritual disciplines that Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 5 and 6, or chapter 6 specifically, uh, giving, praying, and fasting. We know we should pray. And we know the scriptures teach that prayer works. And we believe these things. But in this passage, Jesus is calling his disciples to go beyond mere knowledge about prayer and even beyond mere mental belief about prayer and to take the step into practice. He says, ask, seek, knock. It's not enough to simply believe in prayer or to believe that it works. We must pray. We must pray. And of course, as we will see, the reason that prayer works And that we must pray is because God, our Father, truly does hear and answer prayer. So here's the big idea for today. The life of the disciple is not easy, but if God is your Father, he provides and helps when you seek him diligently. And since we've been helped, may we help as well. Let's break this up a little bit first. We see ask, we must ask, why? Because we need help, we need help. As we come to verse number seven, um, I seem to think as we read through the Sermon on the Mount, we're really coming to maybe the conclusion and the summary form of the Sermon on the Mount. There is a sense in which this is not just another teaching on prayer, but a teaching on prayer that that backs up everything else that Jesus has already taught. And go back and think and remember where we started in the Sermon on the Mount. 
Matthew 5, beginning in verse 2. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. One definite tie between those first four Beatitudes uh, is that they describe in great detail the fact that we have need. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the mourners. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the hungry and thirsty. Now, as we discussed those months ago, we noted that they're they're primarily spiritual things that Jesus was teaching. In terms of poorness, it's poorness of spirit. In terms of mourning, it's it's mourning the unrighteousness. It's in terms of meekness, it's it's not weakness of flesh necessarily, but humility and gentleness. In terms of hunger and thirst, it's it's a yearning after righteousness. And all of those things place us as Followers of Jesus squarely in the place of need. Spiritual need, yes, but real need. And there is a sense that we are blessed in our need. We are blessed, meaning we're to be congratulated. It's it's good that we're in this place. And why is that? Well, in our poorness of spirit, our mourning of sin, uh, in our meekness and in our hunger and thirst for righteousness, we know that we're insufficient. We know that we're lacking. We know that our true condition is of need. And from that point, we can ask for help. If you're poor but deny it, you'll hardly reach out for help. If, if you do not mourn sin and unrighteousness, you hardly will, will sense its weight. If, if you do not know that you are weak, you will certainly find yourself confident. If you do not hunger and thirst for righteousness, well, then you may find yourself satisfied with unrighteousness. But as disciples, Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the mourning. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. We know where we are. We know we need help. And in fact, the rest of the Sermon on the Mount goes on to tell us even more of what we need. We need help being salt and light. We need help with our anger. We need help with our lust. We need help with our faithfulness in marriage. We need help with keeping our word. We need help with making reconciliation. We need help loving our enemies. We need help being generous with praying, with fasting. We need help with our priorities. We need help seeking the kingdom first. We need help with our worries. We need help with our perspective on others in our judgmental attitudes. You see, if we're not careful, all of the teachings on the Sermon on the Mount can pile up like stones on top of us if we don't have help. But here, as I believe Jesus is really starting to wind up his teaching, here we are called to ask, to seek, and to knock because we need help. I was reminded of Jesus teaching to his disciples in John 15, uh, this famous passage of the vine and branches. So I want to read a few verses of that. Jesus said, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it might bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. 
So abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Here Jesus tells his disciples, those who had followed him at this point for for probably close to a few years, they they knew him well. They'd seen him do miracle after miracle. They've heard his teachings. They themselves had been sent out to teach and do miracles. Yet he tells them that without me, you can do nothing. And if that was true of of Peter and James and John and and Matthew and and all the rest of those guys, it's, it's true of you and me as well. Without him, we can do nothing. Jesus doesn't give us the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount to let them pile up on top of us and then send us out for ourselves so that we can be depressed about how how bad we are. He shows us what true righteousness looks like, and then he tells us to seek and ask and knock, for our Father will help us. And... As much as this is true spiritually, we know it is true with our daily needs as well, because he's already taught us not to worry, not to have anxiety because of the goodness of our Father. So whatever the need is, may we ask, may we seek, may we knock. Now, what about those three terms, ask, seek, knock? We'll talk a little bit about them later. the question is, is the difference between them significant? Is it, is it three different kinds of prayer? Are there three different applications? Well, there are, a, I think, a couple different applications. We'll, we'll get to those in a few minutes. But I think the big point is that Jesus is showing the importance of bringing things to him in prayer or to the Lord in prayer. There is persistence, and persistence is a help to us, not just because we're persistent, but because of who we're praying to, which leads us on in the passage into the next thing. Ask, not just because we need help, but ask because our Father will help. Look at verses 9 through 11. Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? If he asks for a fish, will it give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? Why should we be persistent and faithful in prayer? Well, we should treasure prayer as a gift because of who our Father is. There's many references we could go to to back this up or similar teachings. One of those is in Luke chapter number 18. And Jesus told a parable there that's perfectly fitting for this exact topic. Luke 18, beginning in verse 1, he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continually coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. 
And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? In this parable, Jesus uses an illustration from life to show how much more God will give answer to our prayer than the unrighteous judge gave answer to that persistent widow. The unrighteous judge, it said, neither feared God nor respected man, but he gave justice simply because of the widow's persistence. And God, who is righteous, who is just, and who does care for his children, will so much more give an answer to his elect, it says, his people who cry to him day and night. And what was Jesus' point of telling this parable? That we might always pray and not lose heart. And what was Jesus' question at the end of that parable? Will the Son of Man find faith when he comes? Will he find God's people with this kind of faith, the kind of faith that asks and seeks and knocks earnestly in prayer because they believe and know God does hear and answer them? The idea in our text today in Matthew 7 is exactly the same, only with this comparison, it's not the unjust judge, but rather the earthly father that is used as a point of comparison. If a son is in need, if a son is hungry, will his father deceive him and give him something that is not food or something that is perhaps harmful? It's interesting that Jesus uses the stone to contrast bread here. It made me think back uh, to chapter number three, I believe, where Jesus was fasting and praying in the wilderness. And what did Satan tempt him with? He said, if you're the son of man, uh, why don't you take these stones and turn them into bread? A round stone could look like a round loaf. If you're hungry in the wilderness and you saw that round stone and you thought of that fresh, warm, round loaf of bread that your mother used to prepare for you every day, it probably would serve to embitter you and strengthen the hunger. That would have been true of Jesus in the wilderness even though he did not sin, he didn't give in, he was still very hungry. And the same with the fish. These are, these are translated a little bit differently depending on which version of the scripture you have. But the idea is that uh, here's a fish that, yeah, it swims in the water. Maybe it's an eel or a snake. It comes from the water, but it's not really something you want to reach down and grab in order to cook and eat. Would an earthly father, Jesus says, trick or even harm their child with a gift like that when they really just need food. Now, there certainly are some earthly fathers who, humanly speaking, are not worth their salt. They do harm their children. They do not provide. They are selfish. But in the metaphor, Jesus is saying, would, would a regular father, just a, a decent human being, be this cruel to his child? And of course, the answer is no. And he says, if you then who are evil, much like the, the unjust judge who didn't fear God or respect man, if, if you are evil, evil compared to the father who he's going to speak of, if you then who are evil will provide for your children, then how much more will God, who is not evil, who is not unjust, 
who hasn't an ounce of selfishness in his being, how much more will he provide? Now here, the request is in terms of need. God will provide everything his children need when they ask him. It's not necessarily in terms of dreams or of every desire that we have. Sometimes we, we skew these terms. And uh, also, this is a promise to those who have God as their father. Now, God certainly answers some prayers of those who are unbelievers. Primarily, he answers the prayer of, of faith and repentance. But by and large, the relationship and power of prayer is something that is available to us because we're children of God because we've been made sons and daughters by adoption. But for those who come in faith, believing, prayer is a powerful tool. And it's a powerful tool because its power is the power and providence of God. Not that we are mighty, but that he is mighty and that he is good. In 1 John chapter 5, uh, verses 13 and 14, the Apostle John writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. What is our confidence in prayer? That God hears us when we come to him according to his will. That's a good qualifier. It's a necessary qualifier. It doesn't reduce the power of prayer. It teaches us about how to pray. In other words, these verses and the ones in Matthew can never teach us that if we simply keep asking for the same thing over and over again, that we'll get it no matter what it is. It's not in terms of simply our dreams. It's certainly not in terms of unrighteous things. It's in terms of our need, and it's in terms of God's will. And in Matthew 7, it is good gifts that God gives to his children. And he is the one who gets to determine what those good gifts are. And we want him to determine that because oftentimes we ask for things that we may perceive to be good gifts and God doesn't give them to us. Perhaps it's because they weren't good gifts after all. Now these concepts, we can't abuse them sometimes. Uh, sometimes we or you may hear people say, that anything can happen as long as they attach Jesus' name to it, so to speak, and declare it in Jesus' name. But that's not a magic bullet. It's not a silver bullet that guarantees success in prayer. It, it must be according to God's will. It, it must be according to his plan, what he's already shown us. Sometimes it's not God's will for us to get what we want. Sometimes it's not even God's will for a loved one to be healed of a disease. Sometimes it is God's will for us to suffer for a season. And prayer reveals that. Prayer points us to God's will. It places us on his lap of mercy and asks, Father, what will you do here? Will you help? What is your plan? James gives us some insight into this as well in James 4, verses 2 and 3. He says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And there are really two principles there. 
One is that we simply do not have because we do not ask. Simply, we often are prayerless. We say we believe in prayer. We say we know God hears and answers prayer, but in practice, we're prayerless. And the second that James says is that often we pray with an attitude of selfishness or the attitude of pride rather than with the attitude of God's will being done, which is what Jesus taught us. We should never be conceited in prayer, assuming that we can just speak things into happening by attaching Jesus' name to it, but God also, also never to be prayerless. Both of those things are ditches which we ought to avoid. Jesus tells us to ask, to seek, and to knock. Be persistent in prayer because God, our good Father, he will help us. He does give good gifts. Scott pointed this out a number of months ago when he spoke about a different passage in the Sermon on the Mount. But in the parallel passage that Matt read earlier, the good gift that God promises to give is the Holy Spirit. And what is the Holy Spirit called? He is our helper. We need that Holy Spirit. And we need him not only because we're often helpless, but often we don't even know how to pray. Of course, Paul told us that in Romans 8. He says, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and he who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness, and often that weakness is prayerlessness. Some situations in life are so dire that we don't even know what to ask for. We don't even understand what we truly need, but we have help. Do you know how I have found this promise from Romans 8 very helpful? Well, a couple weeks ago, we, we looked at the principle of, of seeking God's kingdom first, and I have to be honest with you, there are times where it's very clear what it means to, to seek God's kingdom first in a situation in, in life. There are big picture terms, but, but there are other times when it's not so obvious what seeking God's kingship and his rulership would look like in a certain situation. And this is a time where we have to rely on the Holy Spirit who dwells within us as believers, who intercedes for us in ways that we cannot when I don't know what it means to seek God's kingdom, I can still seek him because the Holy Spirit makes intercession for me when I don't even know what to ask for. And there's another big application of this text in Matthew that is fitting for all of our talk about the kingdom. In the beginning of the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus told us that unless our righteousness exceeded that of the scribes and Pharisees, will never enter the kingdom. In chapter 6, as we saw a week ago, two weeks ago, we are told to seek the kingdom. And in the verses following these ones, Jesus speaks again about entering the kingdom by the narrow gate. What are we asking for? What are we seeking? What are we knocking on? We're asking for God's help we're seeking the kingdom, and we're seeking entrance into it. We're knocking, not necessarily on a, on a door, 
Some translations use the word door uh, in verse number nine or verse number eight, but the word door isn't there. It just says to knock and it will be opened. What will be opened? Well, perhaps it's the gate of the kingdom itself. And perhaps the way of entrance to the kingdom is yes, by the way that Jesus told us, and to do those things, we need help because we always fall insufficient. Every day we fall insufficient. And we come back to that point where we see, I'm poor in spirit, I'm needy, I'm hungering for righteousness. Ask, Jesus says, seek the kingdom, knock on the gate, it will be open to you. Because God, our heavenly father, gives good gifts. As a child of God, do you find yourself lacking in some sense? Well then pray. And not just a token prayer, not just a, well, I can say that I've prayed now prayer, but ask and seek and knock at the door, at the gate. He does give good gifts to those who come in faith, and he does give entrance into the kingdom to those who come seeking him. And remember that if you're a child of God, you have received that help, and because we've been helped, then we should help. I wanted to cover verse number 12 today because I think it really goes along with this. Jesus says, therefore, or so, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Because God hears and answers, because he gives good gifts, and because of everything else we've read in the Sermon on the Mount, then whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. We know this as the, the golden rule. And it really goes along with this teaching on prayer because it's born out of who God is. Since God helps his children, then may we out of that help others. Now, Jesus was not the first to state a principle like the golden rule. You can find statements like this from the Greeks. You can find the statement like this from Confucius. You can find statements like this within Buddhism, you can find statements like this in Judaism before the time of Christ. But the interesting thing about all these other statements is that they seem to always be in the negative. In other words, what you hate, do not do, or what you would not want your brother to do to you, don't do that. They're all statements of do not do this, but Jesus flips it around and he makes it a positive statement a positive principle. Now, just before the time of Jesus, there were two rabbis, Rabbi Shammai and Rabbi Hillel. We talked about them a little bit uh, during when we looked at Jesus' teaching on divorce, but they were probably one of the two of the most famous rabbis in that era. And they were both asked a question that's recorded. Uh, a, a person went to both of them and said, can you summarize the law while I stand on one foot? Now, I don't know how long you can stand on one foot, and I'm not going to demonstrate that today, but it's not very long, relatively speaking. So the person asked, Rabbi Shammai, can you tell me, can you summarize the law while I stand on one foot? Rabbi Shammai said, no, that's, that's not possible. It's too complex. So the person went to Rabbi Hillel. These rabbis were, were on many parts sort of opposing, and he went to Rabbi Hillel and said the same thing. And Rabbi Hillel said this, that which is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow. This is the law, the rest is commentary. Now, 
that's very interesting and, and, and meaningful because Jesus was asked a very similar question, wasn't he? And we've looked at this so many times. But the Pharisees, no doubt knowing of this question, thought they would ask Jesus the same thing. And they asked him, Matthew 22 records this, uh, they asked him, teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love the na- your neighbor as yourself. On these two laws, uh, or on these two commandments, depend or hang all the law and the prophets. Now, isn't it interesting that both there with that question and here with the statement of the golden rule that Jesus states in the positive form what others had already sort of said, but it was in the negative. And not only that, but of course, when Jesus answers the question, what's the greatest commandment? He adds also that we ought to love God first. That's how we love our neighbor. But anyways, what's the significance? Is there significance between stating the golden rule in a negative sense and stating it in a positive sense? Is there a difference between saying, whatever you don't want done to you, don't do that, and whatever you would want done for you, do that? Well, I think there is, uh, there is a significance because if I think of myself, and if I'm a human being who's looking for a loophole, well, I can, I can keep the negative form of that pretty easily by just not doing anything. We can fulfill that mostly, maybe not totally, but mostly by just pulling away, by being a recluse, by being alone. But in Jesus' form of this, it requires not just a lack of bad behavior, but it requires a positive, merciful action toward others. It requires us to initiate righteous behavior. Again, James, no doubt got this from Jesus, but he says something very similar. He says in James 4, 17, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him that is sin. To love God and our neighbor, that's what sums up the whole of the law and prophets in Jesus' words. And I would say here that Jesus' statement of the, of the golden rule here, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, I would say that that sums up pretty well the Sermon on the Mount also. It's never enough to simply avoid unrighteousness. It's not enough to know what not to do. And God doesn't desire a mere lack of unrighteousness He doesn't want just a clean slate, even if we could give him that, but we can't. He wants to produce in us his righteousness. And his righteousness is a righteousness that seeks out, that reaches, that helps. And again, that is why we need his help, because it's one thing to avoid doing evil to our brothers, but it's another thing entirely to love them and to seek always for their good to help them. That's why we need the Holy Spirit. That's why we need his grace. So this week, when you find yourself trying to apply this golden rule and you try to treat others as you would want to be treated, to reach out in mercy, to reach out in help, and when you find that difficult, because it is, then pray. 
ask, seek, and knock because your Father will help you. God desires us as his children not just to come to him one time, so to speak, in, in sal- for salvation, one time in a profession of faith, but once we've come to him, he desires that we grow, and we do that by his grace, by his help. Just as God saves us by his grace, he helps us by his grace as well. The life of the disciple is not easy, but if God is your father, he provides and helps when you seek him diligently. And since we have been helped, may we help as well. Lord, thank you for this emphasis on prayer. Lord, we are we are nothing without you. You have given us this wonderful gift of prayer. You are not an unapproachable deity who resides in the heavenlies totally uninterrupted and unbothered by anything that happens down here on the on the creation sphere lord but rather you are aware involved you are reaching in you are present by the holy spirit in the lives of your children you are helping you are providing you give your grace not just for salvation but every day lord so may we ask and seek and help if an unrighteous judge and an earthly father know how to give justice and good gifts to people, then how much more do you, oh God, know how to give good gifts to your children who seek you? And may we seek you with all of our heart. Thank you for your grace, for without it, we could not stand. Thank you for your righteousness, for without it, again, we are but poor, but you've made us rich. Thank you, Jesus Christ. It's in your name we pray. Amen.